welcome to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast, where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. My name is Gemma. Hello, and my name is Ashling, and I still have yet to find an episode where I'm not ridiculously thrilled and excited to be chatting to somebody who wants to give us their time. But tonight it is Leif Bursveden. I presume that is the correct pronunciation of it. What's actually yeah. your, what's your worst pronunciation that you've had? Oh uh, well, <laughs> I get I get all sorts of things. The commonest is leaf, and everyone okay, yeah. I get people coming out to my parents saying, "Oh, isn't it coincidence your son Leaf is really interested in plants?" And they say, <laughs> "No, it's actually leaf." Okay. Um, but the the strangest uh, I was once called loaf. Oh, um, okay. Someone came up to me and said, "Yeah, hi, loaf." And I was sort of like, well, do I look like a baker? (laughs) (laughs) So Leif is a botanist and author. Um, You actually authored a couple of very interesting books, one called The Orchid Hunter. And actually, you've got one coming out in June, and that's where wildflowers grow. And that's a journey through Britain and Ireland. That must have been amazing. I will get on to ask you a lot more about that. (laughs) Um, You've also, you know, just because writing book isn't enough, just finished your PhD at Kew Gardens, one of the most beautiful places in the whole of the UK. And we are just so happy and thrilled that you are here with us to chat about weather, impacts of flowers and all of the rest. But first of all, before we get on to everything else, where did your first love, your first little spark, that first moment where you're like, I'm going to do something with flowers? (laughs) Um, Well, that's a good question. I think I, I always, I always, I, I have this story which sounds incredibly cliche, but it is exactly, it's exactly what sort of triggered all this. Was I when I was seven years old? We lived in the countryside and we're always going for for walks. And on one of our walks, uh, it must have been sort of late May, early June. We came across uh, this plant. Well, I found this plant which I I thought it was a bee sitting on a flower. And I was like, oh, mum, look, there's a, there's a bee on this flower. And my mum was like, actually, no, Lace, that's, that's a bee orchid. It's like the whole thing is a flower and it just looks like it's a bee. And I just couldn't believe that there was this plant which looked like an animal. You know, these two worlds which had seemed, seemed so different to me. And yet suddenly they were sort of combined into one. I just couldn't believe that. And so, yeah, over, over the, the following years, I sort of started noticing plants a bit more. I really liked the fact that they didn't run away from me when I tried to look at them, which is the problem with everything else. <laughs> um, you know, birds were always flying away. Butterflies were always flying away. It's incredibly frustrating. And all I wanted to do was give them a bit of appreciation. Um, but yeah, the plants couldn't do that. So that was, that was very appealing as well. Uh, but yeah, if, if there was a single moment, it would have been that bee orchid. It's um, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. But you you mentioned about um, birds and butterflies. So clearly there's like something in you for the natural world that you're like, I'm so like, there's something that brings this curiosity, something that drives you. Yeah, I mean, I just find it endlessly fascinating. Even now, I'll go outside and I just feel like a child. I just find something, you know, some moss on a wall or something. And I can spend ages just like staring at a wall at these, at these mosses and things growing on it. And just like all the tiny intricate patterns and learning about the ways that they have adapted to their environments and, 
um, just seeing the diversity of all these different things. It just makes me just so excited and just I just want to learn more and more about all these things that I'm finding. It's always a really tricky thing to talk about because there are lots of people who aren't interested in nature who, you know, then sort of learn how to love it. Um, but when you're sort of, it's been the case your entire life, it's really hard to say, well, this is how you become interested in it because I've just always been interested in it. So yeah, it is, it's a challenging thing to kind of try and um, share that with people, but it's, it's something which I think everyone is born with. I think, you know, you give a child like an earthworm or a dandelion clock or something, and they're fascinated. You can see them just like so caught up in awe and, and sort of childlike wonderment. And it's so sad, of course, that that gets sort of lost in so many children as they grow up. Uh, so, yeah, I guess I'm trying, I'm trying very hard to stop that happening. It's not an easy task yeah um but yeah yeah a worthwhile task though do you know I'm always amazed as well I have two small children and the time we can spend in the back garden with the most mundane things never ceases to amaze me and they don't play with their toys inside nothing like that but a worm uh, a spider um maybe something under a rock so something mm. that um, like a centipede we found the other day that was of great and also ants as well but they just spent hours and hours with them it's so true mm. I must actually remember that and take that forward just to keep bringing them back and I, yeah. I should learn more about it but I do use a little um, app called picture this yeah. and it's brilliant because you can just snap it and for mm. people like me it just tells you everything about it it makes you look like you know a lot more than you actually yeah do. that's true <laughs> but also <laughs> one of the most wonderful things about the natural world is you don't need to know anything about it in order to enjoy it and I just love that so I'm I'm a I'm a namer I love to name everything but over the last few years I've learned to sort of let that go and just accept the fact that there are so many things that I will never know the name of, mm. but I can just go and sit, you know, at the oh. bottom of a tree and just watch stuff happening and enjoy it, even though I have no idea what anything's called, how it all works or anything like that. What's your favorite name for things? So like I have a favorite cloud. I'm pretty much the same with you and clouds. I could just stare at them all day and they tell me like a million things. So have you got like a favorite thing or pronunciation or something that you love? What's your favorite thing? Oh, that's one of the hardest questions I've ever been asked. <laughs> um, there are some really good uh, plant names. I think, um, okay, I'm going to go for squinancy wort. Ooh, I've no a, idea what that is. <laughs> amazing. It's a very, very small, sort of uh, very pale pink, almost white flower. It has four petals in a cross shape uh, and it grows on chalk grassland. And um, it used to be used a long, long time ago to treat a disease called Quinsy, which is kind of a bit like tonsillitis. Oh. Um, and over, so it was, it was called Quinsy wort. And over time, sort of like Chinese whispers, that's morphed into squinancy wort. Um, so yeah, it's a great name, great that little is story. Awesome. Yeah. That, is the, that is a great story. That's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so you mentioned go back to being seven. Mm-hmm. And you're in it. Well, I won't disclose your age if you don't want to, but it's now a while Sorry. later. <laughs> enough time to have written some books and also yeah. to have done a PhD with Kew Gardens, which is pretty fascinating. But I suppose 
the one thing that we really want to talk about is what changes have you seen in the natural world with weather and climate? Oh, well, it's interesting. I Over the last couple of years, particularly, I've registered the fact that I actually have seen a lot of things that have changed over the last 10, 20 years, uh, which surprised me when I had that realisation because, you know, we the climate always feels to me less so now, but for most of my life has always felt like it's a thing which is changing, but it's changing very, very slowly. And so we hear these stories about, uh, you know, from people in the generation above me who are like, Oh yeah, there used to be swarms of insects around when I was younger. And now there are far fewer. And I never thought I would see that uh, difference as well, but actually you know, I see far fewer butterflies um, around today. Like, so, so last year I did this uh, trip for looking at wildflowers. In 2013, I did a trip looking for orchids. And the difference between those two years was really quite just terrifying. Um, and yeah, the number of insects around, even the, the, the abundance of certain species as well. I mean, obviously these are individual years and there could be other factors at play as well, but it is worrying. It's so worrying to actually be able to see the effects of this huge thing, which we're being told is happening and is happening. And we have a lot of evidence for, but actually that tangible influence it's really interesting actually so um, the last book that you wrote the one that's coming out in june where the yeah. wildflowers grow you did that last year yes which is quite fascinating because that was still kind of in lockdown yes so there would have been less traffic less movement and the opportunity for more uh wildlife nature to to take hold it's quite quite worrying yeah it was it was noticeable actually over, over lockdowns. Um, one of the real, one of the very few, but very good things that came out of it was um, for example, the road verges didn't get cut when they would normally be cut. And so you had so many road verges suddenly blooming, everything grew, started flowering. And of course, plants being the base of the, the food chain that brings in all the insects. And so it was so good to see all those road verges full of plants full of flowers full of insects and i'm just desperately hoping that people will have seen that and thought actually that's quite nice to look at we need more of that we're going to stop uh asking the council to to mow our verges or weed the pavements um but yeah so it was it's i guess it's a bit early to say at this stage whether that's had an impact but i'm really really hope it has done hmm. I definitely noticed this year it feels as though the spring flowers this year are earlier than they have been in recent years I mean we've spoken about this before um, in conversations amongst ourselves but also on the podcast that it does feel like they are out a lot earlier I agree yeah I've noticed that on several occasions um, one of my favorite bits about being a botanist is every year every spring sort of noting when the first of this species is and first of that one first of that one and yeah this year it's been without even looking at dates from previous years it's been so obvious that things like um my first greater stitchwort for example which is this very delicate five petaled white flower uh, that usually grows in sort of ancient woodlands um i would normally be expecting to find that sort of now onwards middle of middle of april onwards uh, but actually i found it about three weeks ago and 
just couldn't believe it because it was this plant which I in my mind I wasn't going to see for another few weeks and yet there it was in full flower and so obviously it was really nice to see that and it made me very happy but there was this undertone of oh this is so early this shouldn't be happening yet so you must be a big fan of phenology gardens (laughs) I'm to be honest I don't spend much time in in organized um, like nature stuff like gardens so and um, I actually, you know, I hang out in the woods <laughs> rather than, um, but yeah, I'm sure if I went to I spent some time in a, in a phenology garden. I well, I guess I kind of meant the records. I'm fascinated by the phenology of, mm. of like the climate. I know there's one in the West of Ireland and I just like, I just, the data. I just love yeah. Probably, you know, it's amazing. And we, um, and actually there's a, a paper which came out, uh, in January, I think, uh, which is this big study on flowering time and phenology using about 400 wild plant species in Britain, possibly and Ireland, or perhaps just Britain, I can't remember. But it was a great geographic spread from the south coast of England all the way up to Shetland, about 400 species. And um, they used phenology data and herbarium specimens stretching back to the 80s. And they've shown very convincingly, in my opinion, that between the 1980s and the present day, plants are on average flowering a whole month earlier uh, than they would not, they would have been in the 1980s, which is just terrifying. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very, very, very worrying. It's a real sort of clash with the joy I get from seeing all these plants. But it's amazing, as you say, that we, we have that data and that we can do things with it and informed decisions and, and things. I suppose the thing as well is if plants and flowers are due to the climate change and are coming out earlier, then when the weather then changes, for example, if you have a late spring frost, they're then being impacted by that when maybe they wouldn't have been a couple of years ago. So then also then the weather plays a part as well, because when the weather changes, that will impact whether the plants survive. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. So the spring plants, um, have evolved in this country have evolved this really cool way of knowing when to flower um, so it's this process called vernalization where obviously in Britain and Ireland we live in this temperate climate where we get these warm summers and cold winters and obviously if you're a plant that produces flowers you don't want to produce your flowers in the middle of the winter because they're just going to get destroyed by the, the temperature and frosts and things so what they've done, which I just love, is um, they use the winter cold period to time their flowering. So it's like there's there's this genetic switch. Uh, it's called flowering locker C, and basically it acts as like a floral brake pedal. So during the oops, uh, the late summer and the early autumn, it's on in every cell. This brake pedal is on, so they don't produce any flowers. And then during the the cold, actually turns this brake pedal off. So in each cell over the course of the winter, as it's going through this cold period, uh, the cold turns the cell off, the the gene off, sorry, in each cell one by one, very, very slowly. So it lasts all the way through the winter. Um, And then once you've had a cold period long enough, uh, enough of the genes have been switched off in each cell that um, the brake pedal is like released and then it triggers flowering. And so... That obviously, what, what that means is that if you get 
a warm week in December or a cold week, um, yeah, you kind of a cold week in like April or something, then it doesn't suddenly mean you start producing flowers just before Christmas, which would obviously be terrible because then January and February come along and it's very, very cold. So there is to some extent plants can cope with the fact that we're getting weird, um, you know, warm, warm temperatures in like March and stuff in February, but it affects different plants in different ways. So some of them are really able to cope with the changing temperatures but there are also species which look like they're really starting to struggle. So things like bluebells, which are obviously such an iconic species in the country and everyone loves them for good reason, because they're just phenomenal. Um, but they could, they look like they're going to really, really struggle with climate change because um, obviously it's very important for them being in a woodland to, they have to, sort of grow and flower before all the leaves come out on the trees above them. Cause as soon as those leaves come out blocks, a lot of the sunlight, they can't photosynthesize as much, produce as much sugar for their bulking up their bulbs so that they can flower the following year. It also means that there are fewer insects around. So if they flower while the leaves are already out, then there are going to be fewer insects around. They won't be pollinated. So it's very important that these plants grow and flower, these bluebells grow and flower before the leaves come out. But what we what looks like is happening is that the warming temperatures um, are bringing leaf, the leaf bud bursts. So the leaves are coming out earlier and earlier and earlier, but the bluebells can't, they don't, it doesn't look like they can catch, they can keep up with that. So it looks like there might be a stage if things continue as they're, as they are, where the bluebells are flowering while there are already lots and lots of leaves out on the trees. And as soon as that overlap sort of shifts and they start flowering while the leaves are already out, then that's going to have really, really negative effects for them because they can't get pollinated or pollination rates are much lower. They can't produce as much um, you know, food from, from their leaves from photosynthesizing. So they can't um, then put up a flower spike the next year and so it is looking like our bluebird populations might start to really suffer, which is horrible because they're such wonderful plants. And they are, such, yeah. oh. they literally, so woods are also a place of a calm for me for many reasons. And the joy I get, I still have a couple of snowdrops actually in my, no, my local woods here. And I genuinely get so much joy from just seeing them just seeing that different color in the woodlands yeah. actually makes me really sad about the bluebells. Yeah. I totally agree with you. They are so beautiful and they bring so much hope to so many people every year. You know, you've just about turned the corner of a, probably a difficult winter and, you know, that change of year is a change of season. It marks everything that's happened in your mm. life that year. It actually is a massive symbol of, of hope for everybody. Yeah. Really quite sad. Yeah, sorry about that. No, well, look, that's reality, though, isn't it? That it is. That's that's what we. Yeah. That's that's what people need to know. If we don't sort of make changes in how mm. we live, and they don't have to be extraordinarily large changes, but if we all mm. cumulatively made changes, yeah. that would have a big, you know, cumulative effect. I'm really curious to know. Um, tell me where did your inspiration come to like write these books I mean it's 
incredible to sit down and even think about writing a book actually do it and then go on and do another one (laughs) how do you like I mean I have so many questions like how do you know what not to include because there's probably a million things that you want to include because you're so incredibly passionate about what you do like talk us through the whole thing and the inspiration for for the books and and the joy that it brings you well (laughs) I will I'll use this this latest one where the wildflowers grow otherwise I'll just be talking forever (laughs) because actually the inspiration for them and everything is quite different for the two books. But yeah, so this one, I, as you, as you've probably guessed, I love plants and nature just with everything I have. And so it causes me so much sadness and stress to see it not being looked after by the world's population. And so I just decided that I needed to basically spend my life persuading as many people as possible that nature is worth saving and actually trying to get them to do it. So, yeah, and I have this specific interest in plants. So I was like, okay, I just need to get everyone notice, at least noticing, not necessarily being interested in, but just being aware of the fact that plants are a thing. They're very important. And yeah, we need to protect them as best we can. And it's bothered me that, you know, I love, I love reading. I've read a lot of nature writing books and most of them are about animals or very few of them are about plants. And I just felt there was this massive gap. And I feel like, you know, I was like, okay, what can I actually do? What do I enjoy doing? Well, I enjoy writing. I spent my childhood like (laughs) writing these sort of journal type diary things about all the plants and all the nature that I found, which is just brilliant to have now because it's hilarious to read back. But um, I clearly like just spent so much time writing, really, really enjoyed it. And so I, yeah, having written this, this first book, The Orchid Hunter was then like, okay, I really want to write another and just try and summarize everything I love about plants throughout the whole year in Britain Ireland and just try, yeah, just try and get across on that passion <laughs> and try and, um, yeah, as I say, just get people noticing plants. So the book is basically, it's a journey through the seasons. So it starts at the beginning, literally on New Year's Day and it ends on New Year's Eve. And it's this, you know, I, I basically spend the whole year plant hunting all around the country Uh, I try and find the common plants that people have heard of, things like bluebells and poppies. But then also I try to track down some of our really unusual plants that do really crazy, wacky things, which is just so interesting. We have so many of them, but people just aren't aware of them and they never get talked about. So I found a load of those as well. And along the way, I met with botanists and plant enthusiasts, basically anyone who had some kind of connection to their local flora and went plant hunting with them and just chatted to them about why they like going to look for wildflowers. And so it was this amazing year. The people I met were just incredible and they just completely make the book. They're really, really great. And introduced me to so many places and shared so many plants with me that I would just wouldn't have found otherwise. Yeah. So it's just this, it's literally just a journey through, through the seasons um, one year of botanizing in Britain and Ireland. And yeah, I just wanted to, I wanted the book to act as like a gateway into botany. Um, because when people hear the word botany, 
they well i when i first heard it i was like that just sounds like something old people do in like dusty libraries and just doesn't sound very interesting to me and um, i just want to show that it's just not that i mean that's a, obviously a part of it but it's so much more and plants plants do all the same things that animals do they have all the same challenges that they have to face you know they've got to reproduce they've got to put food on the table um, they've got to stay alive and you know not get eaten and stuff and they have just come up with this amazing range of different adaptations to deal with those problems because obviously they have to do it while being rooted to the spot and they just doesn't get talked about enough and everyone thinks oh you know animals are great the plants are a bit boring so they don't move but it's not true <laughs> so this book is yeah it's trying to get across how exciting plants are basically. i am so excited i'm like i want to go and read the book have you seen the latest david attenborough series about plants i certainly have i oh, have never seen my god so my <laughs> literally everything that you are saying i'm like i did it i yeah like how do we not like be like all hail yeah. the plant it can't go anywhere and yet it adapts it's incredible yeah it's what was so good about it i thought was the technology now is good enough that you can show plants doing their thing on our sort of time scale and so what that allowed them to do was to talk about plants in this exactly the same way as they do animals and so suddenly you have like all these battles happening and the plants going on adventures and doing all these things but in a way that we can actually see and I had so many of my friends come up to me and say oh wow Leif have you seen this like plants are doing all these things like animals do it's really exciting and I'm like yeah I know you know <laughs> <laughs> But yes, that's really exciting. I'm very pleased that that, uh, that was made. You've mentioned that plants are in one place. So they have to have adaptations that they have to make to survive. Mm. Um, but how does the weather play a part in that? Because obviously they, uh, they rely on wind and rain for things like pollination. So mm -hmm. there must be a range of ways that plants have actually adapted to different weather types. Yes. Yes. Um, oh, my goodness. Where do I even start? I'm... Okay, your email, gonna, to, me, your email gonna... to me was brilliant when you when we first had contact I was like let's talk about all of this stuff so if we can even touch on a little bit of what we emailed about let's go okay okay let me uh let me think okay so I'm gonna stick to one environment mm -hmm. that might be easier so I'm gonna stick to okay I'm gonna talk about aquatic environments so and I'm gonna give you three examples <laughs> just off the top of my head so the first one is quite quick. So yellow water lilies, just like your standard, well, not your standard water lily, but you know, they've got the lily pads on the water. They shove um, their flowers up like periscopes almost, and they, they flower above the water. Um, these weird yellow cup things. The yellow water lily depends on wind uh, for them to sort of spread their seeds. What they do is they, it's kind of like a ship in a bottle. They put their seed inside this air bubble and they rely on the wind to then blow it across the water. And then eventually the air bubble collapses and the seed then sinks to the bottom of the water. So they, yeah, they've evolved to literally use the wind to send their, you know, uh, air bubbled seed out across to the other side of the lake or whatever it is. So yeah, yellow water lilies use the wind. Another aquatic plant that uses the wind is uh, or a group of plants called the bladderworts, which are carnivorous plants. Really? So, sorry carnivorous plants yes yes we have like i think we have like 13 different carnivorous plant species in this country 
literally plants that eat animals I'm like, and just what? insane yeah yeah so oh, oh okay um <laughs> the greater bladderwort is one i saw last year and it's so it's basically like a botanical jellyfish so the way that i'll bring in the weather first before i tell you the carnivorous part so the the way it's not rooted in the ground it's just floating on the surface it doesn't have any roots it has like these feathery leaves which it hangs in the water and it relies on the wind to sort of blur it around its pond or lake or whatever it's on um and that's how it sort of it goes around just like hoovering up different insects and invertebrates little little things that are living in the water so obviously if there was no wind it would just be in one place and it would just eat everything and then be like well now i'm just reliant on stuff coming to me but at least with the wind it can then sort of move around the the water but the, what it does is it's it's so clever it has these like little what look like little air bubbles that look like they're trapped in these sort of feathery leaves that just hang suspended in the water and each of these little air bubbles, which is sort of the size of a pea, maybe even slightly smaller than a pea, they pump everything out. So they pump out the water, air from these little, they're called bladders. Um, so it creates this like mini vacuum inside this bladder trap. Now the bladder trap is like a lidded pot. So it has like a little like hinged lid on the top and outside there are a couple of hairs. And so when some little aquatic insect crawls onto the onto the leaf it tickles the hairs and that triggers the <laughs> triggers the pot of this sorry the lid of this pot um, to open and the vacuum just then sucks in all water insects whatever's there just sucks it straight in and then the lid snaps shut again and that the lid um, opening and closing is the fastest known movement in the plant kingdom it happens i think it's 10 to 15 milliseconds so it's like a fraction of a second all over in a flash and um yeah so the insect gets trapped inside this uh bladder the bladder walls are then lined with like bacteria like our own guts are and so it's a combination of the plant releasing these sort of digestive enzymes into the trap and the bacteria on the insides uh, of the wall of the, of the trap, uh, which then break down the insect or whatever, the invertebrate that's been caught um, into like a soup, which then gets absorbed by the plant. And half an hour later, it's, open, it's pumped everything out again and is ready to catch something else. And it just does that. So it just like the wind blows it around on the pond or whatever, it, whatever it's in. Um, and it's just hoovering up all these little aquatic invertebrates, so which is I've, just I've amazing. I've just come to a conclusion tonight, Gemma. I have studied the wrong subject. My whole life. <laughs> <laughs> like, I need to change now to botany. There are microphysics <laughs> involved in mm. the little vacuum to like suck that in. Is insane. I can't believe that. It's so cool. Yeah, it's an amazing plant. It's just yeah, it's so interesting. Okay, so I've done I've done two, two. examples. What yeah. was my third? Oh, my third. Okay, my third. But this perhaps isn't weather related. It's more climate. I don't know. It's it's basically during the winter. There's this plant called water soldier, which again, like the bladderworts, floats on the surface of the water, and it looks like, you know, like a spider plant. It looks like that, but it's sort of armoured. It's got like little spikes on it and it's a bit tougher. And they just float around on the surface of the water. Obviously, if you, when you're an aquatic plant living in a temperate climate like we do here in Britain, 
you've got real problems in the winter when it gets really cold and you get ice forming on the surface of the water. And so to deal with that problem, it's just so cool. What the, what the plant does is it, the way it floats is it has these like air bubbles inside the leaves. I think they're probably like specialized cells, which they're just full of air. And that helps them just sit on the surface of the water. Towards the end of the autumn, end of the summer, early autumn, um, those air bubbles start collapsing. And so one by one, they start filling with water. And so very slowly in the, during the autumn, the plant sinks to the bottom of the water it's in. So I'm just going to interrupt you there. Is that because of something to do with the density? Yes. Yeah. Changing? Yeah, okay. exactly. This is just so clever. It's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's so good. It's insane. And, <laughs> so then the plant spends the winter just sat on the bottom, like in the silt at the bottom. Um, and obviously the ice then forms at the surface, which is actually massively beneficial because it obviously insulates them. Um, and they spend the winter just hanging out at the bottom of the water. But then the really cool thing is when the spring comes around, they grow new leaves. Um, and those new leaves have like those fully formed bubbles inside. The new leaves start photosynthesizing, produces oxygen, which then fills those bubbles. And so they slowly during the spring, the plant just then floats back to the surface again. And so it just go, you know, the summer it's at the top and then it goes down for the winter, like basically hibernating during the winter and then it comes back up in the spring. And it's just this brilliant way of dealing with the fact you get cold temperatures, ice forming on the water, just avoids the problem altogether by just sinking to the bottom. If I am reincarnated, I've decided now I'm actually going to be a plant. You know, I've often (laughs) thought maybe a bird or somebody who's a nice house dog or something, but that's it. It's a plant now. Excellent. Preferably one that gets pushed around and fed. mm, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could be a bladderwort. Yeah, I think I'd be a pretty good bladderwort. (laughs) It's so interesting to think that there's so many ways that different plants have adapted to different weather situations. I'm just sitting here thinking I need to go and read. So I'm just thinking this. I it's have so no idea how many thousands of plants there are. Actually, I'm gonna. Well, what I need to do, go do is go and buy your book. Have you done an audio version of your book? Uh, I I'm about to. Yes, in the next few weeks, I'm about to go and record the audio book, uh, which is going to be an amazing <gasps> experience. And you're reading um, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my I god! So I am obsessed with audiobooks. I used yeah. to read a lot before my little people came along, but I don't can concentrate as much mm, as I used to yeah. so I thoroughly enjoy like just listening just having yeah. that like everything but what I love the most is when I'm reading a book by an author who is reading the book because for as much as people do lovely voiceovers there is nothing like hearing authors words written in the way that they're most yeah. supposed to be read out loud you know yeah so I will be buying that one Oh, fantastic. Well, that's out at the same time. Um, and yeah, I didn't I didn't do an audiobook for the first one, so I'm very, very excited about this. Um yeah, very you should go back experience. and do an audiobook for the first I one. could do, although <laughs> the writing in the first one does make me cringe quite I'm very proud of a lot of it, but a lot of it now just makes me cringe a lot. So actually that's I think so it's quite funny. a good thing that I don't have to go do one for that one. Um <laughs> <laughs> why is that it's just because you get you've more experienced writer now I think, or yeah i think i'm hoping that my writing has matured a bit over the last five years cross mm-hmm. fingers <laughs> um, but yeah i was i was 23 when oh i wrote that God, writing yeah. about when i was wow. 19 so yeah i was 
yeah, there are bits I'm very proud of, but there is a lot where I'm just like, oh, I'm, oh if I wrote that now, I'd just write it yeah. so differently. This just sounds terrible. So. Do you know what you need to do to add to your edition? You need to put your journals into a book. I, yeah, one would... day I'll definitely do that. <laughs> oh my, uh, that is definitely something I would pick up. I love lear- <laughs> learning, learning like a child, you know, mm. it's the best way to learn mm. for sure. Most of my, I've got notebooks going back to when I was probably about 10. Um, of just, and it's all just like, it's either lists of things that I've seen or just like illegible scrolls where I found something really cool and I'm really excited about it, just writing as fast as I can. But clearly, like, all I want to do, all, all I want to do is just go and look at whatever I found. So I'm like, this is a waste of time. I need to write, write it down so I don't forget. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're really special to go back, back over for sure. Oh. Mm. That's so, so good. Do you know what? We're going to have to move on or else we'll have you on the podcast for um, <laughs> a whole, I don't know. I'm sure we could keep, I'm just fascinated now. I'm definitely, definitely, definitely going to read that book or buy that, listen Fantastic. to that book yeah, is too. what I'm going to do. <laughs> too. I'm, uh, Gemma, we we are, I think you're feeling what I'm feeling tonight. It's like, do we really spend 15 years on the weather and clouds? It's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, they're interesting as well. No, but the more we learn on this podcast, I the know more, the more we're I mean, like, we're very aware that the weather impacts other things, course, hence yeah. why we do the podcast. But the more you learn about the intricacies and how exactly it impacts things, like without really doing this podcast, we probably wouldn't have learned about no. the winter soldiers. Or do you know we just mm. wouldn't have learned about that? But yeah. now to yeah. know what they do, you're just like, oh, you... how did I not know that? Yeah, yeah. particularly cool. <laughs> You would get on very well with a rock friend that we had on on the last podcast. <laughs> you think you just think they're rocks. This was a whole other like mm-hmm. explosion for us where we were like, yeah. oh my God, I need to go out of that. And she was talking about um finding some of us come out in the news recently, sat finding some of the stuff where you know the dinosaurs went extinct. Oh, cool. just you know, yeah, her yeah, pal yeah. was the person mm. who did the drill on oh, the wow. day. Yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah. Anyway. And they could tell us exactly what what the weather would uh, weather and climate would have been like the day after the dinosaurs went extinct. Wow. That's so you cool. Can do that. That's crazy. That's really cool. <laughs> Flowers and rocks were our new favorite now. <laughs> so Gemma, shall we move on to the get to know me round? Yeah, let's do that. So we'll start with the question that we always like to ask people and that's what's your favorite season oh it's a lot of hard questions today (laughs) (laughs) Um, well so I love all the seasons I I know a lot of people who really don't like autumn and winter which always makes me a bit sad because I love that that kind of cozy feeling of the nights drawing in and and um and I'm you know I'm part Swedish so I do love the cold I get very warm in the summer can't really handle it so like the winter is good but you know first and foremost I'm a botanist and spring would have to be my favorite season um the way it makes me feel right now going out into the woods and things and seeing all the wood anemones and everything starting to flower is just I mean I can't even describe it it just makes me so happy so yeah it would have to be spring just for the way it makes me feel just slightly tops everything else just for the reference, that is mm. also my favourite season. That is the right answer. Gemma's <laughs> is awesome. Mine's awesome. Gemma's is awesome. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, no, I do love autumn. You know, there's so much going on there with the plants as well. Uh, yeah, and the changing. No, the take back these. No, take back. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> the spring, Just saying autumn the spring is, is lovely. Well. I mean, one of my favourite things is 
to do is to take pictures of the clouds but also I really like taking up close photos of flowers and just looking at the patterns and mm. the detail there is so amazing and at the moment the flowers are amazing they just look so beautiful like I saw some blossom earlier and I was like just look at the pattern on that yeah and the person I was walking with was like Okay. Yeah. Just look at it. It's so amazing. It's so, so nice. <laughs> it's actually, it's a beautiful time of year. What I think is the most lovely is you see the transition, you know, where you have, um, uh, like, a, I'm sure there's an exact term for this, but for me, the beauty comes from where you see a blossom, but you also see parts of a leaf as well. So you've got this two stage thing happening where it's not just the blossoms there's this and it looks kind of you can't quite figure out what you're looking at from a distance there's just a mm. this extra color and texture to everything that just makes you like want to go what 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 is that and then you realize oh it's a blossom or oh it's a leaf you know yeah i love that just we're in this little transition window and it only ever lasts for a couple of weeks and then yeah it's true yeah yeah the um the nor i think it's the norway maples that produce those green flowers that look like leaves coming out uh, um yeah beautiful Jeremy Dodgers or Jaffa Cakes? <laughs> I've never been asked that on a podcast before. Um, it would have I to be Jeremy Dodgers. Yeah, oh, excellent. Jeremy Dodgers. I'm, I'm so and here for it. Jeremy next Dodgers, question, yeah. how mm. do you eat the Jeremy Dodger? Oh, I just, ooh, I feel like maybe I'm going to answer this wrong. Um, I just I just eat it. There's no messing. There's no like taking the two bits Good. apart or anything go like around, that. Go around. Just, and... just straight up. No, oh. no going around. It, I'd eat it like I would a digestive biscuit. Yeah. Oh, we like to leave the jammy bit in the just, middle of the last. Yeah, last. I like to work around mm. it. And then... mm. You know, what? I haven't had a jammy dodger for like years. You need like, to actually, go have one. Yes, <laughs> I completely forgotten they existed. To be honest with you, um, yeah, I need to, need to get some. <laughs> yet, yet you know you would choose it, so it obviously resonates with mm. you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very like it was a treat when I was growing up to have a jammy yeah. dodger. That was that was good. So, yeah. <laughs> If you were a fruit or vegetable, what would you be? I love these questions so much. Um, you're going to ask me why as well, aren't you? Yes. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I was a fruit or vegetable, I think... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could pick my favourite fruit or vegetable... But there'd be no real justifiable. No, there has to be like if you had to become one, what would it be? What's what's popping to your mind? Um, well, the thing that's popping into my mind is a mango. There you go. Um, No one said that. No one said that before. No, and it's a great fruit as well. (laughs) It is like if you get it where it's grown, it's better than chocolate. Yeah, yes, I agree. I completely Mm. agree. It's my favorite fruit, closely tied with like a good orange. Um, but yeah, a good mango. I, I'm a huge fan of the color yellow. It's just my favorite thing. I wear yellow all the time. And that mango yellow is the best of all the yellows. Um, so there's definitely something I think I dress like a mango a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so <laughs> I think, yeah, I'd probably be a mango. <laughs> It's a real sales pitch. I dress like a mango. And I'm a <laughs> If you could invite one person to dinner, they can be anybody at all from any historical time frame. They can even be a fictional character. Who would you invite? Uh, <laughs> I think I would. I tell you what. So my my initial thought was David Attenborough, but 
as amazing as David would be, I, I've actually already met him only very briefly. I can't say I've sat down and had dinner with him. It was at one of his book signings and I talked to him for a minute about plants and it was one of the best minutes of my life. So I'm not going to say David Astenborough because I have very briefly met him. I will say one of my real botanical heroes um, was this woman called Ellen Hutchins and she lived in the early 1800s in the southwest corner of Ireland and she was just incredible she so she when she was 20 she'd grown up in the southwest corner of Ireland moved to Dublin uh, for school I think and then when she was 20 her mum was taken ill and so she was sort of she moved back to the southwest of Ireland to County Cork and she was really worried about you know, being restricted to the house and she wanted something to do that would get her outside. And so she wrote to um, this guy called James Mackay, who was a botanist uh, in Dublin. And he was like, you know, become a botanist, like go and look at plants. That would be a really good thing to get you out of the house. And so she started exploring a local area and um, started focusing on mosses, liverworts, uh, lichens and seaweeds. And she, in the space of seven years, she became like this unbelievable botanist. And she was discovering so many species that had never been seen in Ireland before. She discovered about 20 species that were just new to science altogether. And she, you know, mosses and liverworts are obviously these tiny plants that most people think they look exactly the same. And even today, so few people specialize in them. And even with you know today's resources, we've got the internet and we've got field guides and things. And they, yeah, today still so few people know much about them. But she was doing this in the early 1800s with none of that, no, you know, no internet, no guidebooks. Um, she didn't have any of the like wet weather gear that we have today or like walking boots and stuff. And yet she was going out into these Atlantic rainforests and you know, documenting all these mosses and liverworts and things which are growing all over these trees. And yeah, what was what really interested me in her in the first place is that she was doing all this when she was like my age. So between the age of 20 and 27, I'm now 28. But yeah, she was doing all this botany at the same time as I was doing all this botany, but she was doing it in the 1800s in wet, rainy Southwest Island, very, very isolated part of the world. And yeah, she, it was her just interest in these little, little plants, which inspired me to start learning about the mosses and the liverworts that I was seeing. Um, and she very sadly, she then got ill when she was 27 and died just before she, her 30th birthday. So she had this amazing, very short, but very amazing life, achieved so much. And she's sort of known as Ireland's first female botanist. But she was wonderful. So yeah, if I had to pick one person, I would absolutely love to meet her. And just we'd just talk about mosses and liverworts for hours. It'd be amazing. Um, I, I think yeah, this yeah. is actually um, one of my favorite answers ever. It's, a bit oh. it's really lovely. That's incredible. I've got to go look this woman up. Yeah, she's great. Well, she's in the new book. So you'll be able to, um, I mean, there are lots of, you can read about, there's a website, the Ellen Hutchins Festival website. And they've got some amazing resources. They So Ellen's great, I think it's great, great grandniece. Um, she's called Madeline Hutchins. And she has transcribed painstakingly all these letters, which Ellen used to exchange with botanists in Dublin and in Britain. And um, 
yeah, so we have all this information, thanks to her transcribing these letters. And yeah, it's all contained on this website, which is just brilliant. And yeah, just I definitely recommend going to have a look at that. But if you want a summary, then uh, you'll have to read the new book. Yeah, <laughs> definitely will. <laughs> definitely will. So we also like to leave our guests with a little bit of weather wisdom. So mm-hmm. we were hoping that you might have some weather wisdom. So are there any flowers which have names related to weather? Yes, there absolutely are. So you've got things, you've got things like sunflowers, which um, obviously follow the sun during the day and they look like suns so yeah sunflowers uh you've got uh wood anemones which are growing in ancient woodlands all around the country at the moment they're known colloquially as wind flowers because mm. they're very very delicate and so any sort of gentle breeze sends them all sort of bobbing about in a very lovely way and then there's also uh, common poppies one of the local names that used to be used in sort of pockets of the countryside um, was Thunderflower, um, or I think other ones included Thunderbolts and Lightnings. Um, but these are related to the fact that in order to prevent or to discourage their children picking poppies, parents used to, to tell their children that these plants, if you picked them, would result in thunder and lightning. And so, yeah, they became known as, as Thunderflowers. Whether that was true or not remains to be <laughs> remains to be seen. But uh, um, yeah, they certainly used to tell their children that that they'd get thunderstorms if they picked the poppies. So that's so lovely. That's so lovely. <laughs> Leif, thank you so much for joining us this evening. I can honestly say your joy and passion and love for what you do is so infectious i can't oh. actually wait for your book to come out and i can't wait oh, to hear you. the audio version of your book to come out in your <laughs> voice because i know that i'm going to hear just how much you absolutely love what you do and i hope you do it forever and ever oh, and ever you. and ever and ever <laughs> that's really kind well thank you so much for having me it's always such an honor to be invited onto podcasts so um if any of our listeners would like to follow you can you tell us where we can find you yes um i am on twitter and instagram at leif sweden um i'm also on tiktok fairly newly which uh (laughs) is an interesting experience um but yeah twitter and instagram is where i spend most of my social media time so yeah fantastic i'll definitely be getting a new follower tonight i'll be having a a look for it myself (laughs) if people want to follow us on twitter we are the number four love of weather and on instagram and tiktok we are for the love of weather and if we could ask people to please subscribe rate and review the podcast that would mean a great deal to us thank you so much and as always me and ash just hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more thanks for listening Bye bye